0: This podcast is brought to you by Mississippi Land Bank. Mississippi Land Bank, where they understand the lay of the land. And they know that farming is not just a simple life. It's big business, big spreadsheets, and sometimes requires big money, big loans. And that's what they're there for at Mississippi Land Bank. Check them out online at MSLandBank.com. Also brought to you by Jubilation's Cheesecake in West Point. I stopped by there myself on the way to the game uh, this past weekend on Saturday was headed to Super Bulldog weekend. You can too. If you're headed south through West Point, it's right on Highway 45. Stop in. You can have uh, made from scratch soup, sandwiches for lunch, or just all the goodies, including, of course, Cheesecake. And uh, get to know George, Lou Ann, and the folks there at Jubilation's Cheesecake. Good Bulldogs. Support them, and uh, you'll be glad you did.
1: The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Recorded,
0: Omaha. Here comes the Bulldog baseball team. And there's a ball in the air, deep in the outfield. Got a chance, got a chance. Gone. Three-run homer. Back to me, back to me. i
1: What's up, everyone, and welcome to a brand-new episode of Dogpile right after Mississippi State becomes the first team in college baseball to win 30 games in the 2019 season. They get their first – is this the first SEC sweep of the year? Am I forgetting something? No, I think it is. Yeah. Okay, this is the first SEC sweep of the season. Mississippi State is now 31-6, 10-5, in the sec they are leading the sec west thanks to texas a&m being nine five and one had that tie with missouri uh then a three-way log jam at nine and six they're tied for first in the sec outright with georgia who's also 10 and five matt it's it's pretty it's pretty clearly uh a good time to be following (laughs) the diamond dogs at, at this
0: point yeah it really is they're playing good baseball you know and it's um at this point you know, again, they're they're halfway through the conference season, they're sitting there on top uh in terms of the record, long way to go. But what's happening to looks like to me is the lineup is rounding itself out. So if you think about it this way, Brett, I mean, I could argue this and there's plenty to back this up. I don't think this is off base. But, you know, as good as they are and as good as their record is right now, 31 and 6 overall, it's just phenomenal. Of course, 10 and yeah. 5 in the SEC, as good as that is. They still to this point through the first half of the SEC season have been trying to figure out everything about their lineup. And, and that's because, you know, Tanner Allen, he's sagged and now he's on the way up again. Um, Rowdy Jordan, we know that whole saga. And then there's the the second base, third base thing, <clears throat> which, for all intents and purposes, now has taken Gunnar Halter kind of out, right? And so. Yes, we knew going into the weekend, State should sweep it, or could, and sweeps are hard, but they certainly could. Not only did they, but they completely dominated it. I didn't think Alabama played very well in any of the games, and but State did, and therefore State dominated the series. But on top of that, now you kind of get a glance at what this team uh, can start to be offensively when... Allen and Rowdy Jordan and everybody are swinging it well at the same time as as well as now you got Foskey where he needs to be at second base. And from what I saw this weekend, it, it really does look like Marshall Gilbert is going to just completely own that competition at third base, especially if he continues that. So I just think here we go. I mean, halfway point, they're in the lead in the league. But you are you just, I think, got a glimpse just this weekend of what the team's going to look like the rest of the way. Uh, I, I agree
1: completely. And, it, and what's funny is you you went through all that on lineup spots that aren't 100% set in stone right now, and you yeah. didn't even mention DH.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, mm-hmm. three
1: guys got A-Bs at, at DH in the Sunday game. I think five, four for the weekend, Hayden Jones, Brad Cumbus. Josh Hatcher and Landon Jordan got a uh, got a pinch hit, DH at bat on Friday. Uh, he also got a pinch hit at bat at third base uh, on Sunday. So yeah, this this lineup, there's still potential. There's still untapped potential in this lineup on a team that is thirty one and six, that is ten and five in the SEC, uh, leading the SEC West, tied for number one in the SEC overall, halfway through the season, and that kind of leads to what what I was hoping we could do with with this episode of the podcast, since we will have, since we're in a twice weekly schedule now, we will come back to you probably Wednesday to preview Arkansas that Thursday, Friday, Saturday series. We'll come back to you then to to get into the next weekend and maybe the SEC uh, schedule at large that weekend. Uh, so we we need to recap this weekend while we're here, Super Bulldog weekend, and the way I wanted to do that was. To just kind of run through all of the pieces of this team that make it possible for it to be on top of the SEC at the end of the SEC season, just okay. like it is at the halfway point. And I, I, there's there's a lot of places you could start, but considering what he did on Friday night, don't we have to start with Ethan Small? Oh, yeah, no doubt. He's He's incredible. So he had... 15 strikeouts in six innings. You you do the math there. He retired 18 batters, got 15 of them swinging. Um, and, and we've done a lot with Jake Mangum in, in the record books. But Ethan Small deserves his own fair share of, of record book watching. So let's do all that right now. He's got 94 strikeouts on the year. I tweeted this after his start on Friday. The school record is 174. It was set by Eric Dupost in 1996. And here's a quick fun fact that wasn't in the tweet: uh, No Bulldog has racked up more than 130 strikeouts in a season since 2000. Chris Stratton was the closest with 127 in 2012, and Ethan Small came close with 122 last year. But no, no Bulldog has had more than 130 in a season. Since 2000, but back to the tweet about the record, I did the math and found that if he made all five starts left in the regular season, made one in Hoover and made one in a regional, he would need 11.4 strikeouts per game to break that school record. So two things on that. First, thank you, Mississippi State fans, for not adding me about not including a super regional acting (laughs) like I'm hating on the team. Thank you very much for for not doing that. But that 11.4 is also not completely preposterous. For him, he's got five starts against SEC competition, and he's averaging 10.4 Ks mm-hmm. per game. Uh, of course, going to a super regional would help that. He going to uh, the going to a super would lower the Ks per game he needs to break the record down to 10 mm-hmm. per game. Throw in a start in Omaha, and that number goes down to 8.8 per game. Also, on an SEC level, of course, Ben McDonald has the SEC record for strikeouts in a season. I think we all could have guessed that he had 202. Mm-hmm. But that school record set by Eric DuBose is fifth in SEC history. So if Small flirts with that, he'll be in elite company in both school history and SEC history. My last thing on Small before I get your thoughts on him is – In the record books, career strikeouts in school history. Ethan has 236. Chris Stratton is third in school history with 279. So you do the math. That's very much within striking distance. It seems pretty likely that Small is going to get up there. He may even become one of just three Bulldogs to have 300 career strikeouts, joining Eric Dubose at 428 and Jeff Brantley at 364. These numbers suggest – that Ethan Small could end his career as one of the top five pitchers in Mississippi state history, even if it were to end this year. And you got to remember he's a junior. He's likely to go be drafted high and go get that money. But even if it ends with one year of eligibility left, he still could be statistically one of the top five pit starting pitchers in Mississippi state history.
0: Yeah. I, I think that he's definitely got to, Uh, you know, a shot at it. And I'm, I like the way you did it. Well, you take it into a regional, which, because that's pretty much a given. Yes. Um, and then the super is not. So that's exactly what my thinking was. Yeah. You know, so we'll see when you, when you get to that point, you know, when and if, so he's had, let me look at this, right. So he's got nine starts now in the year. Yes. And seven of the nine starts, he has double digit strikeouts. (laughs) He only struck out six in the start against Sam Houston State. Am I right? They had bad weather for that. It was really cold. Yeah, it was freezing cold that entire weekend. That Nebraska game actually got canceled because of the freezing cold. Yeah. And then um, in the game against Auburn, he only struck out seven. Uh, So that's the only two games all year where he's not struck out double digit.
1: What a peasant striking out seven (laughs) in an SEC start. What a peasant.
0: Yeah, I know. And his team and handed over with his team in a five-zip lead. You know, um, <laughs> and the other thing is, too, it would be interesting to to reference it just for fun would be all these other record holders who, you know, he may be trying to chase them down, whether it's DuBose's record for strikeouts in a season at state or whatever um, others Stratton on the list is in their strikeout seasons. What were their walk totals? Because that's another thing that blows mm. me away about what Ethan is doing is that he's at 94 strikeouts on the year and he's only walked 15 batters the whole year, 15, uh, 94 strikeouts, only 15 walks all year. So again, I go back to those nine starts for Ethan small in four of his nine starts. He didn't walk a single batter. So not quite half, but almost, um, he issued four walks in that win against LSU. That's the most walks he's issued in a game this year. But he also had ten strikeouts, and of course, State won the game.
1: So that's that's a really good point. I just made a I just made a note of that. I will do that research. Yeah, at, at some point. That's that's
0: that's fascinating to me I'll because uh, you know, uh, again, not even knowing who knows what what you'll find. But my thing is, you know, you always heard with a lot of strikeout guys about guys being effectively wild. Um, where you know McDonald, obviously the SEC record holder, just so good. Debose, I don't at all remember him as an effectively wild guy, but I would venture to guess that their walk numbers are they 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 can't be fewer than Ethan's are his walk to to strike out at this point. It can't be fewer. So I'll be I'll be interested to see what you find out.
1: No, I'll I'll definitely do that that research. It's that's that's a good question. I'll hey. I'll have an answer for you uh pretty soon. Hopefully okay. by the time by the next uh, episode okay. or the next time we bring up Ethan Small, and I imagine we're gonna do that often,
0: oh, yeah. given
1: the way he's he's pitching. And something something that he did in this start was particularly interesting to me in how he racked up the fifteen Ks, and he's been doing this all year. But he murdered people with the fastball. Yeah. He's, he goes high with it. He goes low with it. He can move it. He can do whatever he wants to with that fastball. But that high fastball with two strikes has been really, really effective for him as a strikeout pitch. So I want you to hear from Ethan Small and then from uh, from Chris Limonis. I spliced a few uh, audio clips together from from Friday night after after his start. Uh, he goes six innings, strikes out 15. Mississippi State wins that first game, six to nothing. Here's what Ethan Small and Chris Lamonis had to say about that high fastball.
0: I mean, I would be willing to say it's probably 90% fastballs. Uh, the off-speed uh, kind of was just throw them off a little bit, but moving it in and out and going up when I need to. You like know, they were willing to chase that fastball up in the zone. I mean, was this something you picked up on pretty early? Right, yeah. Uh, every Pretty much every week I try to see if that's something I'll swing at, And if it works well, I can keep going with it. You've had some
1: success with the high fastball this year. Was there something about your fastball that makes that the cage? Was that a Fox Hall
0: thing? Right. What, why is that? Uh, I did a lot last year. Of course, last year was a big, like, I'm coming off surgery. Like, I had to learn how to pitch basically last year. And now that I've got the command piece down, um, I've always got swings and misses on it up there just because of the spin rate, and it's a pretty efficient spin rate. Um, but being able to use that as a weapon now, and uh, the big thing is, like, trying to throw a ball that they'll swing at is kind of tough because, you know, you're not used to it. But, uh, yeah, that's definitely been a big thing for this
1: year. Why do you think that pitch works for him?
0: Well, it looks like it's, it's deceptive, so they think it's a little lower in the zone. I'm sure when you go into a weekend, everybody says, hey, don't swing here, and he just has uh, there's a deceptive piece that he really knows how to pitch off of it because he'll go down and come up um just just timing do we did a great job of
1: messing up some time so you heard about the fastball spin rate and and that from from Ethan and I do want to quickly explain that for those that aren't like in depth into the MLB trackman revolution I'll explain it very very quickly there's research by driveline if you Google fastball spin rate driveline you'll probably be able to find it and I suggest you do it's really interesting Stuff The research is from January of this year. Their research shows spin rate generates more fastball swings and misses than velocity does, the the proof. Let's use fastballs from 92 to 94 miles an hour, for example. Those fastballs with a 1,700 to 1,900 RPM spin rate got swings and misses just about 6% of the time. Those same speed fastballs at 23 to 2,500 Mm. RPM, those got swings and misses 10% of the time. Now that 4% increase based on spin rate. If you want to do the same just on velocity, that same data suggests you would have to increase your velocity by something like 7 or more miles an hour, whereas that can take years and years to develop if if it's even possible. A guy can spend an off season working on a different grip or a different arm action and see a drastic change in his spin rate. So with that knowledge we definitively know that fastball spin rate is key to generating swings and misses and ethan small knows he has a high spin rate fastball and he uses it high in the zone with with two strikes he's been he's been lethal in in that regard and that's that's the kind of weapon that without this data we may not have known this about ethan small maybe 20 years ago but we know it now and he's put him on pace to have one of the better seasons in mississippi state history
0: yeah well, and, and again, he's he's the – you know, one of the leaders of the team. He's certainly the leader of the pitching staff. And, and what it looks like is he's making all those other guys better, too. They're watching him pitch on Fridays, and they're learning little things from him. You know, who knows? I would love to be a fly on the wall. And a lot of those conversations with Ethan Small and teammates, but also with Coach Foxhall about how they work with these other guys to be better because – the entire staff is better. You know, that's the other thing, is it just goes without saying. The entire staff is better. I was looking at the numbers, entire staff, of course. You know, last year to this year. Last year, you have the whole season to look at. This year, you're halfway through the SEC season. But, Brett, are you a big stats guy? I, well, I, I guess I sh- I meant that's rhetorical. You really are. You know, you, you enjoy the the deep dive stats. So, Strike. Uh, I'm sorry. Strikeout to walk ratio, K to BB ratio. How do you feel about that stat? Just personally, is that one that you see that and it jump? You, you pay attention to it, or is it one that you see it and you just kind of roll your eyes and throw it out the window? No, that's
1: that's strong. I mean, you might yeah. have to in certain cases you might have to apply a context to pitching style or mm-hmm. uh, opponent or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But at this point in the year, I mean, we're what 36. Yeah. Games into a 50-something game regular right. season. Yeah, K,
0: K to BB is perfectly valid. So last year's team, uh, that was with Pilkington, obviously with Small, coming on at the end of the year, really good. Um, last year's team for the whole season, they had a strike-to-walk-out. Listen to me. A strikeout to walk ratio. <laughs> What's a strike-to-walk-out? That's a new one. A strikeout to walk ratio of 2.33 to 1. Okay. So 2.33 strikeouts. For every one walk. That was the entire season last year. This year, so far, through 37 games, this team has a 4.15 to 1. Good Lord. uh, Yeah, strikeout to walk ratio. So, what that shows you is a massive improvement across the entire staff. Now, we do know that the strikeouts are top heavy on the staff. Right, Small and Ginn. And just, just JT Ginn's presence in the first 37 games makes a huge difference there in the Ooh. strikeout total. We know that Ethan Small is a huge reason for the strikeout total. But still, we're, the ratio is giving you the relation of strikeouts to walks. It just shows you that the entire staff as a whole, they're just not walking people. And they're able to get swings and misses. I bring that up just to say what I surmise is that what Ethan Small has figured out and some little things about how to make that fastball so effective in terms of spin rate, as well as you know working with Foxhall. I think it's filtering through other guys too. I think you're seeing those little results other guys um, that throughout the staff more often they are doing a better job of hitting the strike zone with fastballs, you know, instead of, you know, out of the strike, they're getting swings and misses on fastballs. They're not walking people as the result and the strikeout totals are up. And I think that number proves that.
1: Well, and it's a, it's a good point. And I think the bullpen is a spot where uh, you, you obviously, I guess, prioritize strike zone command with your bullpen, because at that point you're in you're in the closing innings of a game with a team this good. You're often leading uh, in the seventh, eighth, and ninth, and you just want you just don't want to give things to them for free. Mm-hmm. If they're gonna make yeah. a comeback on you, you got to make them earn it, right? And yeah, good the point. The bullpen has done exactly that. Uh, look at look at the walk totals out of the bullpen. Tristan Barlow has thrown seventeen innings, one walk. Uh, Jared Liebelt has thrown twenty five and two thirds innings. Three walks, Colby White, fifteen and two thirds innings, three walks. Uh, Riley Self, fourteen and two thirds innings, two walks. These guys, uh, Brandon Smith, twenty and two thirds innings, three walks. They just don't make it easy that's on right. you for for this for this staff to allow a team to to come back. The that's it's good numbers, it's good information, and I think uh, I think if that's sustainable over the course of the season. Uh, that's, that's going to be real tough to beat for for a group of seven other teams in a certain small town in Nebraska. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I definitely agree with that. So while we're, while we're on the subject of, of things that this team has that make you think it can stay on top of the SEC standings for another five
0: weeks, what's at the top of that list for you? Well, I think it's defense. Okay. Now, and I know that that's been a a, a sore spot. Okay, if I the injured, new era
1: of defense. Yeah, there you go.
0: Yeah, the, you know the new. I, I want to be as as you know, as, as try to be as accurate as I can be. And, and the only reason I hesitate is I understand we've seen we saw the flash of the glove and the arm from Marshall Gilbert yesterday at third base, and. You know, maybe it's naive to project that over the entire course of the remainder of the season, but I just felt like I saw some confidence there that they haven't necessarily had. Um, You know, Foskew definitely, you know, uh, uh, good at third base, but he looks better and more confident at second base than anybody else we've seen over there. Okay. I agree. You agree with that? Yeah he's obviously an improvement at the plate over whoever you had in that second base spot, mostly Halter. Yep. And so now we go over to third and just like last week, we were looking at the hitting numbers. Gilbert had had, you know, half as many at bats as Halter in the regular season, but a better slugging percentage. And, you know, he had struck out a little more at a little higher rate, but again, he'd only had half the at bats. And when they kind of plugged him in there, He showed up big. Now, he's going to see better teams than Alabama going forward. Yeah, he did have one ball in his backhand, I guess it was yesterday, that is a play he probably can make, and he didn't make the play. But, you know, that chopper down the line, he comes up there, and he comes out firing, made a great play, kind of a web gym type of play, just showed you that he does have the ability. And the best sign for me was, It sounds like I'm chasing a rabbit because I'm talking hitting, but it has everything to do with him being in the lineup every day. Is he hit that home run opposite field? You know, I guess he hit one to center and then one opposite, and that's the key for Marshall Gilbert, is the ability to go to the plate and hit the ball the other way, because, you know, that's what they're trying to do with a nine-hole hitter or an eight-hole hitter, is they're going to try to pitch you away and just get you to hit that weak ground ball, um, believing that you'll chase it or you'll swing and miss. And they're only going to selectively challenge you on the inside part of the plate, because you know the, the assumption is any right-handed hitter at that level can pull a baseball. Any of them can. Mm-hmm. But what are they going to do with that pitch on the outside corner? Well, step up there and hit it out of the park, out, out you know away, or hit it up out to center field. So, everything I'm saying is, I just that paired with the play that he made at third showed me he can do it. It gives everybody confidence in him. It gives him confidence. Foscue looks like the real deal at second base, I'll be honest with you. They've even looked like much more of a double play threat since he's been put into that spot. So I just think it's the right fit for right now. And it takes away – if that continues, Brett, it takes away one of the question marks you had about this team, which were few. And for me – that defensive change and to figure it out midseason, midstream, could be one of the keys that keeps them on top of the SEC through the remainder of the season. What do you think?
1: Well, I mean, it, it takes away basically the only hole
0: yeah. in the lineup,
1: right? Because you you never worry about the outfield. The outfield is what it is. It's plus at every position. Dustin Skelton is hitting 100 a, a dingers from the catcher <laughs> spot. Tanner Allen is hitting at first base again. Jordan Westberg has stayed hitting. at at shortstop so your only questions were second and third and if you put Foscu's proven bad at second and if you have Gilbert hitting this way at third you're one through nine with zero questions in your lineup considering you have so many options at DH and it's likely that at least one of them can deliver hits on a given day it's just a matter of if you happen to have the right guy in the lineup Mm -hmm. on that particular day now I, I completely agree with you on on Gilbert. I wrote about him uh, a little bit in full count, uh, the weekly post. It'll be it'll be on the website by the time this podcast posts. So follow me on Twitter at Brett underscore Hudson, or just go to mattwyattmedia.com and find the Hudson Report blog to uh, to read that. But he's, I mean, he deserves it. And I even, before writing about him, I asked Coach Lamonis after the Sunday game, if, if Marshall Gilbert was a guy that could be an everyday third baseman. And he said, yes, just based on some of the defensive plays he's made and the, the hitting that he's brought to the, the park. You mentioned that his ABs haven't been uh, in, in big numbers, I guess. But still, 46 ABs. He's hitting 326. Uh, let's see. 15 hits on the year. Six of them have gone for extra bases. Three of them have left the yard. So he's slugging. 587. Uh, You compare that to uh, Elijah McNamee slugging 557, Jake Bangham slugging 552, Westberg and Foskey over 600, and Skelton at 544. So if he can hold that slugging percentage over increased ABs, he would be one of the better power bats in this lineup. Now, uh, Lamonis also said that there's still going to be a little bit of a rotation. At third base, they're still going to use Gunnar Halter just based on matchup. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. But I also asked him a similar question about DH later on, in, in the same presser about just shoveling, shuff, shuffling, not shoveling, shuffling so many different guys through that spot through starts and through pinch hitters. And he said when they find a hot hand, they'll use it. They did that with Josh Hatcher earlier this year just to. Proved the point. They even had Skelton doing some some DH at, at times back when they were rotating catcher. So that leads me to believe the fact that Lamonis will roll with a hot hand out of at DH if he's presented one. If Gilbert presents him a hot bat at third base, why wouldn't he roll with it every day?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. You know, and you you brought it up before, but. The flexibility that he shows in figuring things out, shows it at DH, working, tweaking, trying to figure out matchups, who's been hitting the ball well in practice, all those kinds of things. Um, so who knows, Brad? I mean, maybe we do see a situation where there's still some substituting going on and and all. But I just think, um, you know, and, and the thing is, too, Gilbert is an older guy, just been around and, and maybe is ready to really help the team. I, I like it. It eliminates a whole, um, you know. As a catcher, you're the quarterback out there on the field. You gotta you, you gotta be in control of all eight positions outside of you, and you like that mentality at third base. You know, you get in a clutch game down the road where. It's tight, it's in a regional, bases are loaded, and it's a one-run game, you know? And you got to come up and play with your toes on the grass and understand certain situations or, you know, there's runners on the corners and that guy over there represents the tying. You like that catcher mentality out there, too. And the key, again, for those that, like, hear this and go, well, y'all are talking about defense, but you keep talking about hitting. Well, that's the that's the way that Gilbert keeps himself in there at third base every day is if he keeps putting the bat on the ball, and it doesn't have to be home runs. If he's batting in the nine hole, it can just be productive outs. You know, somebody's on base and you move that guy over to second base so you get Mangum up there to to swing with two outs and a guy in scoring position. You know, little things like that. So that that was one for me. No, I
1: I agree, I agree completely. My my last bit on on this is starting pitching behind ethan small we we gushed on on ethan so it's only fair to to do the rest for do the same for the guys behind him jt ginn is back peyton plumley was strong keegan james is is still around and there's a one more nugget that that i want to get to uh later on in that conversation but i want to start with peyton plumley because uh, put it this way if you take out the two-inning start against LSU, which I still don't understand why it was cut short at, at two innings, but here's what Plumley has done in SCC starts, if you take that out. Ten in the third innings, six hits and five walks allowed, one earned run allowed for an ERA of 0.87, five strikeouts, and he's covered ten in the third innings in 142 pitches. That pitch rate, you could easily see him stretch it out to seven innings if his pitch count is allowed to get up in the 90s. Now, I do eventually want to get to JT Gann and, and Keegan James and, and some others, but we also have some sound of, of Peyton. So I want to get your thoughts on Peyton before we hear what he had to say after his Saturday start.
0: Well, what I like so much about Plumley is when he's on, he hits the strike zone down, like in the very bottom of the strike zone. He works down, down. I mean, if if he's on... And you're catching Plumley. You get ready to block balls all day long because he's down, 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 and then he's going to get a swing and a miss on a on a breaking ball that that he buries it and bounces it on the plate. You know, and and it shows in that he's thrown Peyton Plumley has thrown 37 and two thirds innings this year and has allowed two home runs all oh, year long. Wow. Zero triples. Okay, so he's not giving up that hit that's rattling the alley out there in left center or off the wall and rolling around a guy gets a triple out of it and two home runs all year long when he's on he's down and i like it and that's that's huge when you have an offense yourself that can leave the yard and and you've gotten this infield thing figured out where ground balls are going to get you back in the dugout more often than not you know and and, and again it's about the consistency of that play in the infield. But that's what I like most about him. And you know, and he's he he's not an Ethan Small, okay? He's sitting here at thirty eight strikeouts and sixteen walks, but still that's nothing to sneeze at. For a for a third guy on the mound that if he's on and confident, one, he's not giving up home runs. And two, he's still not walking a ton of guys across the year in his outings. Um, that's what I like about him the most.
1: No, I, I agree completely. and your your point about uh, going low in the zone that reminded me of of something. I'm glad you said something about that because as I was watching his start on Saturday, kind of watching it during the uh, the spring football game, the maroon and white game, I saw his willingness to just spin the crap out of that that breaking ball. I mm. haven't actually asked Peyton if it's a slider or a curveball or or what what he calls it. But I I love that he can establish that lower boundary of the strike zone. And he's not afraid to let that breaking ball spike onto the plate Mm. and see if someone's willing to chase it because Peyton has already established that bottom of the strike zone. And they don't know if that ball is going to stay up just enough to stay in that lower half that, that Peyton has established so well. And You can get away with that trick this year because State is so much better defensively at catcher this year. With with Dustin Skelton and the catching coach Kyle Cheesebro and his development defensively, a guy like Peyton Pumley can use the two-seam and use the sinker and even the changeup to establish that bottom line of the strike zone and then spin that breaker off into the dirt sometimes. He doesn't have to hit the strike zone with it every time because once you establish that lower half, you can – use it, you can use that breaker to force people to chase, and you can throw it because you can trust Dustin Skelton to make that block pretty regularly. Here's what Peyton said after his start
0: against Alabama on Saturday. Uh, after seeing the small as a start and he punches out 15 guys, I mean there's a lot, a lot you can... Uh, think about going to the next day, but I knew the the best way to get these guys out was to be able to move my ball up and down the zone, change speeds, and I think that's what helped me out.
1: How do you let the two seam and the sinker kind of play with each other and, and play off of each other?
0: Well, it depends on a lot what side of the plate that I'm going to. Uh, now, if I'm going into somebody, I'm going to start at middle, and I'm going to try to let it work its way in. Mm-hmm. If I'm going away, I'm going to try to start at maybe a lefty sip and try to work it back into him. But uh, if I do miss, I just think sink, uh, ball right down the middle, make him hit this ball right here, and that's uh, that's what I've been doing.
1: Okay, back to starting pitching depth. J.T. Gen is back. Keegan James is is still around. He made he ha he's had some really good outings since he's been out of that uh, out of that Sunday starter role. His last two outings, he's gone against Tennessee and Alabama. Let's see. This is four and two thirds innings, two hits allowed, two earned runs allowed, three Ks, only one walk uh, in those two outings. His season ERA has dipped from four point two one. so he's he's reacted to the bullpen pretty well and something that cole gordon said that not cole gordon that chris lamona said about cole gordon on sunday interested interested me for those that that don't remember cole gordon went two and two thirds out of the bullpen on sunday 68 pitches uh face 13 batters allowed five hits He said that he wanted Cole Gordon, Chris Lamona said he wanted Cole Gordon to have an extended outing in that game and and see a a higher pitch count, which immediately made me wonder, is Chris Lamona seeing Cole Gordon as someone who could potentially start games? Now, we know he's done that in the past, in the last two seasons of of, uh, just hilarious lack of pitching depth. I just wonder, the fact that Chris Lamona said that in post game leads me to believe that maybe Cole Gordon is a guy who you see start maybe a fourth regional game or maybe a fourth or fifth game in Omaha when the schedule gets weird and postseason in Hoover and Hoover and things like that. It just makes you wonder if if Coach Lamonis is seeing and F- Coach Foxhall is seeing him as a guy that that could do that kind of thing. So J T. Ginn, Keegan James, Cole Gordon. Go
0: with that where you will. Yeah, well, I think I think I think I agree with you in that over the overall depth is what is going to win you a lot of games in the postseason or not. And I, am I right, Brett? That's really what you're driving at. Is,
1: For the most part, yeah, yeah. That's that's pretty much it. I mean, it, it, you can have three starting pitchers or even two and a half, and and win a whole bunch of mm-hmm. of regular season games. But I think everyone knows the Hoover schedule, the regional schedule, the Omaha schedule. Those aren't clean, neat three game series schedules. You got to have you got to have guys that can survive mm. different roles, and and Mississippi State has exactly that.
0: That's it. That's it. You know, and just like we talked about on the last podcast, you know, if self is pun here himself, yeah. uh, which he's starting to look more and more like every time he goes out. Um, that's huge because think about the difference in the back end of games. And it, if um, th- think about the contrast of a Colby white versus a Riley self, right? If uh, you're seeing, pitches from those two right handers you know colby white's going to come in there and throw this spinning fastball at you at 94 95 and it's going to be down 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 and if he's on he's going to hit the bottom of the strike zone you're not going to hit it and then self's a right hander who's throwing at 88 89 and everything spins and falls off the table and is away and occasionally he'll mix it up and have something that runs in on me. But it's just, that's his mix-up pitch. It's so different. So whether it's matching up against certain hitters, you know, you got a big pinch hit or a big situation for some team's power right-handed bat, and he's a pull hitter, right? And if you leave it up or it's hard over the plate, he hit it out to left field. Yeah, but he has like maybe a handful of hard hit balls opposite field all year long, and you're in a regional. Well, you're bringing in Riley Self right there, because you're going to spin away from him and say you're not hitting it out of here. We're not going to leave it in on you. Yep. Um, you know, you got a young kid at the plate pinch hitting for some team in a key situation in the postseason, and he's an opposite field hitter. He's not pulled one all year long. Well, you're putting Colby White in there and to say throw it as hard as you can. I don't care. Just throw it hard. He ain't gonna get the bat around on it. You know, you got so many options. So that the the depth is there in the staff to take them a long way. Did
1: did you use the uh, the Colby White Riley self combination intentionally?
0: Since we saw that exact thing on Sunday. Well, I, it's it's probably because I just saw it. You know, it's it's just stuck in my head. Uh, yeah,
1: Riley Riley got four outs to to set it up for for Colby White to get the final three. Of the Sunday game and and get that sweep. But no, it's it's a good point. And yes, that that starting pitching depth it does go to the postseason, and it helps you once you're in that regional or, or once you're in Omaha, and it helps you when you're in Hoover too, to whatever extent the mm-hmm. this coaching staff will care about the uh, the SEC tournament. I know there are some coaching staffs out there that just couldn't possibly care less about Hoover once they've got their yeah. regional status. Solidify, but this is a conversation about the final five weekends of, of the regular season, and it helps you in that regard too. Because J T. Gen is back in it, you know. I, right. uh, I I said on the last podcast it was it, it was less than fifty percent chance that uh, that J T. Gen starts this weekend, but I imagine that number creeping over fifty percent pretty quickly, and it did in fact creep over fifty percent quickly. So quickly that he started on Sunday. Um, so when you throw him into this pitching depth, that just gives you new possibilities with Cole Gordon and Keegan James and then new possibilities for everybody in the bullpen behind that. And, and Peyton Plumley as well. It just it just gives you so many options and, and opportunities to handle really, really good lineups. And the schedule is not kind for, for Mississippi State. Over the over the next five weeks, here's what they have left. They have to go to Arkansas. They're nine and six in the league. Then they host Georgia, the team they're currently tied for first with. They had to go to Texas A and M, who is second in the SEC West. They're nine five and one. Then they have to go to Ole Miss, who all, was almost tied for uh, first in the SEC as well. If they didn't inexplicably drop that game to Kentucky, the Rebels or nine and six. And then the one break quote unquote break is hosting South Carolina to end the year. They're, they're feeling it right now. They're four and 11 in league play, but these next four weeks, man, they are a serious, serious ringer and, Mm -hmm. and pitching depth like that can only help when, when you're going up against teams that are on paper record wise, a comparable level of good to, to Mississippi state.
0: Yeah. All right. So they're 10 and five right now in the league. Um RPI is going to be fine. And let's see, road, Arkansas, road, A M road, Ole Miss, and then home, Georgia, South Carolina. So, you yep. know, I tell you, Brett, I, I, you know, you want to win these road series. The thing, though, that you – And I know, okay, Georgia, that's going to be a handful at home. But again, Georgia's good enough and their RPI is good enough. Even if you only got one of that series, worst case scenario, you're still fine RPI-wise and record-wise. And so I'm just looking at it going, yeah, it's a murderer's row in terms of road series to end the year. It really is. But what are the chances of state losing all three of those road series. Okay. That seems
1: pretty unlikely, doesn't
0: it? It does. It just seems with this team, it just, and this pitching, it just seems likely that at least we don't know which one, but at least one of these road series, they're going to go win it. So let's just say they win one of the three road series, pick up two wins on the road somewhere. The rest of them, they just don't get swept a win here, a win there. Then you turn to the home series and look, with Georgia coming in at that point in April, right at the end of the month, that's going to be a really tough road trip for Georgia. Because, you know, after after being on the road this coming weekend at Arkansas, you know, especially okay, you got midweek against Ole Miss. It's not a conference game, but it's, you know, the the Trustmark Park game. State fans are going to be chomping at the bit to be in there. And load that place up with State hosting Georgia. It's going to be a yep. really tough place to play for Georgia. It's a Georgia team that just lost a series to Tennessee. Okay? That's weird. It, it is weird. State's a better baseball team th- top to bottom than Georgia is. Georgia's good. Uh, that's undeniable. And and so it's a series State should win. I just think that they have been so good to this point. And then, of course, the South Carolina thing. I guess what I'm driving at is – They have set themselves up. They have been so good through this point in the year that they have put themselves in a position where the pressure really isn't on. Now, every team wants to win their conference. You want to win the regular season? Sure you do. You want to win the conference tournament? Sure you do. Are those things as important as hosting a regional? No, they're not. And so this team has put itself in a great position to host a regional if they just go out and cut it loose and have fun the remainder of the year. Just play baseball because they've played so well to this point that the pressure is kind of off. I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, but I think the fact is the pressure is kind of off. Last year with the pressure on, Jake Mangum and those guys took them to a sweep of Florida when they had to have it, you know, for Pete yep. for Pete's sake. I
1: I agree, you know. Go back to the preseason, right, where, excuse me, where we always use the benchmark of 18 and 12, right? If you go 18 and 12 in the SEC, you're probably going to be around the top of the standings or or within earshot of it. Mm -hmm. So say State takes one of each of its road series and then takes two in each of the home series, that puts it at 17 and 13. Then all you got to do is – win one road series or, I mean, Jake Mangos basically never lost to Ole Miss. So who's to say he doesn't go there and take three or at least take two of three Yeah. or South Carolina, they're four and 11 right now. Who's to say you don't sweep that series at the end of the year. If you just do, if you just live the baseball law of averages, right? You take two of three in every home series, you take one of three in every road series. All you got to do is take one of the best teams in the nation and quote-unquote steal one game to be at that 18-12 and 12 benchmark. And as I mentioned, Jake Mangum never loses to Ole Miss. South Carolina is bad. They're the final series at, at home. You mentioned Georgia. That's going to be a tough place to play for, for them. Arkansas has had moments of both good and bad. Mm-hmm. It's not out of the realm of possibility for, for this team to end the regular season with 20 SEC wins. And not only is that... Good to put you in a really good spot in Hoover, but it's also definitely good enough to host a regional, and it might be good enough to have a super regional right right here in Starkville for the first mm. time since 2016. Correct? Yep, yeah,
0: that's right. 2016 when they hosted Arizona, and Bobby Dahlbeck owned uh, that series <laughs> that year against Mississippi State for Arizona. It, um, it'd just be it'd just be a, a great moment for this program if yeah. this brand
1: new stadium can host a super regional in year one and if if Jake Mangum can play his final duty noble field game in a super regional. Yeah. That'd be that'd be a heck of a time and it'd be a it'd be a deserved accomplishment for for a team that is as good as this one has been again, thirty one and six, ten and five in SEC play. Yep.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Well, um really good podcast today, Brett. Uh forty five minutes in. I think we're giving the people what they want, and that's a lot of baseball. I sure hope so. (laughs) I sure hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. That's really good. Um, We kind of hammered on a lot of different things. Uh, By the way, going into uh, this week, Mangum at four hundred one on the year, batting four (laughs) hundred one on the year, and that's after a couple of hits in uh, the Sunday game against Alabama. He was two for six. So uh, he actually saw in the week his average come down. You know, there for a while, uh, late March into that Tennessee series is when he kind of drove it up all the way up to that 423 against Tennessee. Since then, he's been hitting the baseball. It just steadily kind of dropped about 10 or 15 points because prior to Sunday, yesterday, Jake went two for six. It was his first multi-hit game game since the first game of the Tennessee series where he was four for six. Since then, he's got the hitting streak going. It's just that it was a bunch of one-hit games, one for four, one for five, one for three, one for five, one for four, and then yesterday goes two for six. So that's a good sign. Multi-hit game, that'll get him going, and they're going to need it. But uh, he's still on track to break the record, which is the good news. Just thought I'd throw that in there just just as a quick Mangum update. Cool with me. All right, Brett, appreciate you, man. As always, uh, great stuff. Rocking and rolling, baby. Let's go. Oh, he's you hear that? He's ready. Rocking and rolling. He's been hanging out with Steve Robertson too long, and uh, <laughs> always rocking and rolling. For Brett Hudson, I'm Matt Wyatt. Thanks for tuning in to Dogpile. Uh, brought to you by Mississippi Land Bank and MSLandBank.com and Jubilations Cheesecake in West Point, jubilations.com. Go there and uh, get hooked up with them for your next fundraiser. That's what you need to be selling for your fundraiser because it's worth every penny for the people that uh, buy that from you. So check them out at jubilations.com. We'll see you next time on the next Dog Pile. See you.